Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 165. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, I am pleased to be joined by my virtual coach, Mr. Antonio Harrison, also known to the masses as Coach Doc. Doc, how are you doing? I'm good, Steve. How are you doing, man? I am doing awesome. It's, you know, I also spoke to some of your colleagues on prior episodes and it is kind of cool that I get to talk to you in person. I'm so used to having your, your image just floating in front of my face, giving me instructions. So it's weird to actually <laughs> talk to, talk to a human being. Yeah, no, we're real people. We're real people. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that said, why don't you give yourself a quick intro? Just explain to everyone what your background is and what this uh, coach doc thing is all about. Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in Pasadena, California. I've been an athlete all my life, from swimming to track, basketball, football. Also tried my hand at MMA after college football for my eldest son. I've got three boys now, married when he was conceived. And the whole coach thing is I've coached high school football at the varsity level for 15 years now. And um, I've also done personal training and fitness training and group training. I'm a virtual reality fitness coach. I work a lot with mindset, individual clients and groups. And the doc part comes from the fact that I have a master's and PhD in behavior analysis, the science of human behavior. It's funny because when I first saw your name, Coach Doc, I thought, well, that's that's an interesting nickname. This this dude's got two titles in his name. How do you get a name like that? And then I looked you up and I realized, oh, well, that, that makes a ton of sense. He's actually a right. doctor. So there you go. That's why that came from. But yeah, your, your doctorate in behavior analysis is a fascinating thing to me. I mean, for me, I'm not a psychologist by any stretch, but I'm a, a technologist by trade. And one of the interesting areas of software development that I love to work in is human computer interaction. So the psychology of how people use software, how to make software easier to learn. And I sort of feel like having that extra level of understanding makes it much easier to get good results. And so I'm really fascinated by your background, because in addition to being a lifelong athlete and coach, you also come in with a, a doctorate in a related field. And I'd love to explore the connection there and how you engage that background and apply it when you're coaching people. Yes, I'll give you kind of two different sides of it, the physical aspect as well as the mental training aspect of it. For the physical side, really what we're doing when it comes to sports, athletics, fitness, is we're helping folks acquire skills 
based off of accuracy than to fluency. So we're going to get you to do it right, effectively and efficiently, and then get you to do it effortlessly. And so that you're just fluent in that skill, the same way you would think about learning a language. You got to know the actual vocabulary and how to conjugate verbs. And then you need to be able to have a conversation and let it flow. For the mental side of it, it's an interesting component because we're in our science, we're still looking at observable behaviors. But when you start talking about people's thoughts and the mental game, that's something that only you can report from within. And I can't really observe. I can just see what you actually do. And I'll, I'll give you a story of my very first client, I guess, in the mental game was my kicker for my high school football team. He was an avid golfer. I mean, he this kid would dominate league in high school from freshman to senior year. And every year I gave a lecture to the senior class. And one year he came up to my office and was like, I, you know, I didn't know you had a PhD. And do you work with people? And I was like, yeah. And he asked, you know, can you help me? And I said, well, what's going on? And he was telling me how he would crush and dominate competition throughout regular season. But the moment he got into the CIF, which is California's kind of governing body for high school sports, the moment he got into CIF playoffs, he would just crumble. And he was expected to win the whole thing all four years. And I asked him, well, what's going on? Tell me what happens when you get into those moments. And he goes, all these negative thoughts just start going into my head and I can't do it. And I get nervous and scared and anxious. And so I had him do something very simple. I had him take a note card. I wanted him to write down three positive, I, I don't really like the term affirmations, but let's go with it. Three positive affirmations that he truly believes. And then I want him to wear a rubber band on his wrist. And whenever he caught himself going down that rabbit hole of negative thoughts, pull that rubber band back as far as you can, snap it on your wrist to break that mental loop, read those affirmations on the card, take a few deep breaths, walk up and hit the ball. And it sounds pretty simple, but if you think about it this way, Let's say you are angry at your spouse and you're stomping around the house because you're all pissed off. I don't know if I can curse. I don't know if that's a curse word, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're mad and pissed off and then you stub your toe on the couch. Are you still thinking about your spouse? No, you're not. You're thinking about the pain stimulation, right? So that pain stimulation breaks that mental chain of negativity. And then we redirect it to something that's more useful and positive. So like little things like that can be a very effective techniques to get people to get out of their head and back into what they're doing. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it, it's a pattern I'm starting to see as I dig deeper into the psychological and mindset side of sport competition. It's funny, I have been talking to a bunch of different coaches to and having them on the podcast to give their opinions. And I've been looking for, okay, is there like a silver bullet magic answer? You know, if you want to have great strength and conditioning, can you give me five exercises that'll check the boxes? And what it always seems to come back to is there is no magic answer. Yeah. It's about building the mindset that will get you over the hump and, and keep you consistent. There is no magic routine you can do. There's no magic practice you can do. It's about keeping your head in a good space so that you're cultivating that environment of consistency and that practice of learning and being consistent. Because like you said earlier, with any new skill acquisition, it you start off and you don't know what you're doing. It can be very right. frustrating, especially. And we see this in my sport in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, where a lot of people, they quit before they really get that far in. And I don't blame them because it is 
frustrating, right? When you're not as good as you want to be, it is intimidating when some schmuck is sitting on top of you trying to choke you. <laughs> you know? yep. And yep. I can understand people not wanting to do that, even if maybe in their heart they really want to. I can understand the emotions pulling them back. And I love that idea of having kind of a cue or a trigger or something you can use to snap your mindset back. Literally, in this case, snap your mindset yep. right back into where it needs to be. Well, and I'll even add to, to your piggyback off your point of no silver bullet. I'll even go further and say, you got to experiment in the sense of a lot of people will read things or follow some sort of mindset guru or whatever and try to do their routine to a T. And instead of following what they're doing, you need to understand what they did, which was they curated an experience for themselves that worked. So go out there, test the waters, you know, whether it's meditation, there's so many different styles of meditation, whether it's reading excerpts from the Tao or whatever it may be, pick and choose and curate your own experience so that it fits you. Don't try to fit into someone else's mold because it's just not going to work that way. Right. Absolutely. So I would, I would love to understand here from your perspective, something you brought up, which is really interesting was this idea that with behavior analysis, well, you're analyzing behavior, right? It makes perfect mm -hmm. sense. But what someone might think not being familiar with these fields is that, man, if you're good at this stuff, you can basically read minds. You know, it's like in a one of those movies or one of those TV shows like The Mentalist, where you know so much about the human mind that you can just unravel someone's innermost thoughts. But it sounds like what you're saying is it doesn't work like that, right? What you can do is you can analyze and categorize and report back, but you simply can't be a mind reader as a coach. And I'd love to dig into that a little. Yeah, no, I can't read minds at all. Now, I will tell you that I may be a little more proficient in others in recognizing the situation before you, it's even aware on your, it's even on your radar, right? Like I can see something from a mile away that you didn't even know was going to happen, but I can't read anyone's mind. Rather than that, what I'm looking at is where's the moment where there's some sort of hesitation or there's a break in, in the learning curve that we got to take a step back here and take a look at. Where is it that I can enhance your learning process and not slow you down? Know where your baseline is. Know where you're starting, right? Like if I'm going to teach you, see, if I'm going to teach you how to shoot a basketball, I need to see you shoot a basketball. I'm not just going to walk up and tell you, well, this is how you want your hand. This is where you want to tuck your elbow. Let me see where your starting point is first, because I'm not going to waste your time teaching you things you've already got locked in, right? So I'm, all I'm doing is surveying the situation. From there, finding out why you are engaging in the thing you're, you're engaging in and then manipulating the environment, setting up different prompts and reminders for you to do things certain ways, rewarding certain efforts to make sure that I get more of those and then giving you precise corrective feedback that's very succinct and in the moment. One of the things coaches, especially in football, at least that, that's the sport that I've coached the most, uh, that we do poorly is either we don't give specific feedback. A kid drops the ball and you go, catch the ball. That's not going to yeah. help him, right? <laughs> uh, or or they the kid does something wrong and the coach pulls him aside and gives him a 10-minute soliloquy lesson on everything he did wrong. And it was like, nah, just correct that one thing right there in the moment and have him get back out there and do it. So it's, it's about that repetition. It's about that body being able to, to have that muscle memory um but also about knowing that when you did something right, you were recognized for it so that you continue to do that thing. If no one ever told you when you were a kid, when you first wrote your name on your paper, man, that's awesome. You just wrote your name. You wouldn't keep writing your name because nobody would care. 
I got a question for you. How do you reward an athlete in this manner? Because I, I can tell you, I got a four-year-old running around the house and rewarding her is very easy. Basically anything with high sugar content and she's happy. But mm-hmm. with performance athletes, I mean, what do you what do you give them? How do I, if I've got a, a black belt, for example, that wants to do a, a major competitive run and my job is to coach them, what can I offer as a reward when it's time to reinforce that good behavior? What can I as the coach give them that would be meaningful as a reward without being hokey or, you know, feeling fake? I'm just wondering, how does that reward structure and incentive work in a sports performance situation? So this is a very interesting question that a lot of people miss this aspect. One is you are right. It's got to be genuine and it's got to be in the moment. But also you got to know the vibe of the person, right? Like I always say, I've got athletes who want to pat on the back some who need a kick in the ass, some who need to be left alone, and some who need a combination of the three. So I need to know who you are and what drives you first. But when you're talking high-level performance and elite athletes, black belts, what's rewarding for them is the result. They could care less about you telling them good job. They want to see that that move they've been working on has become mastered, that that time for the mile they're running has dropped by three-tenths of a second based off of your training. That natural reinforcer that for them, that's the thing for a high level performer, not someone who's just learning how to play basketball. They need the good job. Someone who's just learning how to put somebody in a rear naked choke like they need the oh, you got that right. There you go. Tuck the, the hand into the um, you know crease of the elbow like they need that. But someone who's already been there, they want you to give them the little things and nuances that are going to take them to the next level because they will feel it when they do it and they'll know it because they've been there and done that. So that doesn't need an external reward from them. They're coming from a place of motivation based off of results. So you're not just walking around with like a bag of M&Ms and you just give one out every Hell time someone no. does a good job? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> but but, I, but I, will, I will tell you this though, like with my, my football team, right? Because it's different working on one-on-one than like if you got a group of 30 guys, yeah, right? So I will keep a clipboard with everyone's name on it. And anytime I give someone some sort of feedback or some sort of praise or I'm in somebody's face because they are not doing what I need them to do, I put a little note, whether however I've classified it or coded it. And the reason I do that is because come Wednesday or Thursday after two or three days of practice, I may look up and realize, you know, Jackson, I haven't said one word to Jackson, but he's been out here busting his ass for three days. He deserves my attention just as much as everyone else. That doesn't mean that I'm going to fake a comment to Jackson. It just means I'm going to observe him a little more than the other folks, right? So that way, everybody's getting a little piece of me as coach. So that's a really good idea because this is a problem that is is pretty rampant in jiu-jitsu. I mean, I, I know that you've trained MMA, so I'm sure that you've seen this because MMA classes are not that different. When you are a high-level, gold-tier, professional, elite-level athlete, you probably have a team, right? You probably yep. have people who are paid to give you attention. But when you are just another person in the class and there's 30 other people in the class it's very easy to be ignored by the instructor or to feel like you're being ignored. And from the instructor's standpoint, 
it's very easy to just treat everyone like they're exactly the same. And, and this is a, a pretty rampant problem in jujitsu where the instructor will come in and there isn't really a lot of tailoring. They do what you said at the beginning, which is basically they come in and they show everyone one technique and they're not spending the time to personally get to know everyone, to personally assess where they're at. They're not doing that thing where they assess, okay, am I retraining someone on something they already know or is this new knowledge to them? That level of customization often is missing. And I'd love to explore what kind of tactics a coach can use to give better one-on-one feedback when the reality of the situation is just they've got a whole room full of people they're responsible for. I love the clipboard idea, but is there anything else that you can do to make sure that people feel like they're being attended to and that they're important to the coach? Yeah, well, first, the two things that came to mind. The first one is realize and other folks do too, especially when you're dealing with adults. If you do have a high level grappler here who is going to go to a tournament, they deserve to get more attention because they're actually going to go into a match, right? As opposed to the person who's just showing up. That doesn't mean the person who's just showing up as a weekend warrior doesn't deserve the attention. It just means like, let's recognize that there's a, there's more on the line for this other person than this one here. So when I look at my clipboard, it's not that Jackson who may never get in the game is going to be equal to my middle linebacker who calls all of my defensive plays in terms of interaction with me is to make sure that Jackson knows that he's appreciated and I'm paying attention. The other thing is it sounds, it's going to sound maybe unconventional or counterintuitive. A lot of the times the way in which I learned to give attention or feedback to folks who aren't getting a lot of it or just making sure that everyone's kind of I'm getting in touch with them is I'll ask them things that have nothing to do with what we're doing. So mm. if I'm, sta- if I'm standing back and there's a kid next to me, high school kid who's off on the sideline waiting to go in, I might just be like, what are you into, man? You got a girlfriend? What kind of books you like to read? What kind of music you like to listen to? What kind of movies you watch? Right. Cause I'm getting to know them as people, which also allows me to understand kind of who they are. If you tell me you like Disney movies, Versus the other person who tells me who likes horror movies, I might be able to give you an analogy when we're working on something that's going to make more sense for one versus the other, right? You're Princess Elsa in this scenario, and you yeah. just need to let it go. Let, let it, it go. go. <laughs> versus, you are, you're, versus you are Michael Myers cause mayhem, right? <laughs> so, you know, just those little questions. Yeah, that's a great point because you reach people in different ways and you see this a lot in jujitsu. You get some of these hard nosed guys who come in and they, you know, they talk about, I want to be like an alpha wolf and I want to be a modern day warrior. And that kind of language speaks to them. But then you get people who aren't like that. And and honestly, I'm not like that. I've never been one of those, like, give it 110% bro type dudes. To me, honestly, the Elsa stuff is going to reach me a lot better. And I love this idea of getting to know people individually because I do feel like this is a challenge a lot of team coaches have and I would consider jujitsu even though jujitsu is fundamentally an individual sport when it comes to okay you got to go out and fight the match the preparation is generally a team sport right usually you've got a room you've got a team you've got the same people and you start to get very close-knit relationships with them and I think that the coach's ability to extract the personality out of these people and learn how to reach them on an individual basis is really, really key if you want to really maximize individual performance for every person on your team. And anybody, anybody I run into, whether it's someone who I'm working with in terms of their spiritual or mental game and, and maybe not for sport, but just for life or their physical aspect. And they go, 
I want to be enlightened. I want to meditation. I want to meditate to enlightenment or I want to be this alpha dominant male. My, my first question to them is why you don't know what that is. Why would you want to be something you have no idea what that experience is like? Anyone who is quote unquote enlightened cannot explain to you what that feels like. Anyone who is an alpha male, you can never walk in their shoes until you're in that moment. Why is it you think that that's something good for you? You explain that to me and I can be able to maybe work with you. Don't make an assumption about what that experience is like and that state of being is like. Yeah, that's actually a brilliant point, too, because if you can broadly categorize your athletes into people who are mostly hobbyists versus people who are elites, you know, people who really do this as a living on the mats, I can imagine that everyone would, of course, want to be the super elite grappler. But when push comes to shove and they understand what that life is actually like, right. I suspect that most people would probably back off. And, and that's not to make a character judgment one way or the other. I no. mean, it's just that everyone has different life priorities. And if you are a family man and you love the job that you've got, you simply might not be willing to sacrifice everything you'd have to sacrifice sacrifice in order to be an elite performer. I mean, we, um, exactly. on the podcast, a repeated guest we've had is Olympian Travis Stevens, who, uh, won, uh, I believe silver for America in judo. And, you know, he's has straight up said he would not encourage people generally to go down his life path because unless you really want it for the majority of people, the amount of sacrifices you have to make to do that is is extreme you basically have to sacrifice every other concern in your life yes. to succeed at that level and he would not recommend that as a blanket policy to people just because they want to be good right there's a there's a point where getting better and getting to the next level requires sacrifice and look everyone's got different barometers for what they're willing to sacrifice and what they're not and that's not to say that one thing is better than the other it's just to say that everyone's goals are different and be saying i want to be a gold medalist i want to be a world champion well there's a lot more to that than just saying it you have to really unpack what that means and what that means for your life yeah no i'm, I'm a firm believer and i live my life through the observation of patterns and one of the biggest patterns i see that is just true to nature in all its form is that everything has its inherent opposite. So whatever you want, you have to be willing to sacrifice and live the opposite of that to get what you want, right? Like however rich you want to be, you got to be willing to be that poor. However successful you want to be as an athlete, you also have to be willing to be at the bottom of the barrel to work your way up. Like it just, that is the way everything exists in our world. It has its inherent opposite. Yeah. Yeah, makes tons of sense. It reminds me of the whole uh, discipline equals freedom thing, right? Sometimes you yes. have to play things backwards because if you want to get to one place, sometimes the opposite is the thing that will actually get you to that point. Uh-huh. Bingo. Yeah. Well, here's a question for you. If you're a coach, let's say that, you know, it's probably a reasonable assumption if you're a, a standard jujitsu or even an MMA instructor, probably a reasonable assumption that the significant majority of your students are not full-time professionals. They're there because they love the sport and they just want to do it to be weekend warriors, right? Which is basically mm -hmm. the bucket that I fall into. I find that these types of people generally have 
one broad thing in common when it comes to mindset, and that is that they kind of pigeonhole themselves and they almost don't really believe in themselves. I'm wondering if you've noticed that before. I find that with hobbyists, for example, they often run themselves down a lot. They they just don't believe that they're any good because they're hobbyists. And they simply don't believe that they can hang in there with the really, really good guys and girls. I'd love to know how you coach around that problem when people are, they know that they're a hobbyist and they let that label define them. How do you break them out of that? Uh, well, one thing is, again, I go back to what is your goal of being here? If what you want to be is just a weekend warrior, you're achieving that goal. There's no need for you to compare yourself to the guy who's trying to become a gold medalist, right? The other thing is I like to remind folks that every master has a master, right? So you may feel one way about yourself because you're compared to this person who's going to a gold medal, but the person who is teaching this gold medalist, you better believe they had a teacher. That teacher had a teacher who's better than them. So there's always levels to it. The other thing is I never want to put anybody in a position that they aren't ready for. So if I go back to the example of football, my freshmen who walk on, who have never put on a helmet, don't even know how to put their knee pads in. They're not going up against a senior who just put on 30 pounds over the summer and has been playing varsity for three years. Yeah, That guy's not going to tackle that guy. Now, if I get a freshman who walks in, who's got... He's been playing some Pop Warner. He's a little bit there and he's ready. We can test those waters. But in terms of someone's own personal mindset about how they feel about themselves, unless that is something they want me to address, I leave that alone and allow the process of which the lessons I can give them by curating experiences and setting them up for success will enhance that. Otherwise, you know, that's, that's something that they have to end up eventually dealing with on their own because that all comes from within yeah yeah i i like what you're saying about how as a coach you need to know where everyone sits on the ladder when they come in because not everyone comes in with a, an equivalent background or equivalent experience and, and i have seen jujitsu instructors do this where Someone will come in and very clearly they've never trained in their lives. Probably they were super intimidated to come in and they worked up the courage. And that is a massive accomplishment to work up the courage to yes. step into a combat sport environment. And then rather than providing them with curated coaching and recognizing where they're at on the scale, the instructor will just give them the exact same warm up routine and skill routine that they give to all of the black belts. Yes. And I've seen that happen. And that's a massive mistake because you're giving people way more than they're ready to chew off. And I know that what most instructors will say is iron sharpens iron. I don't, you know, I want to turn everyone into the, the best version of a warrior that I can. And look, that's all great. Of course we want everyone to be good. But you have to kind of meet people at the level they're at and push them up the hill gradually, right? You can't just take someone who's never trained a day in their lives and throw them in there with a bunch of black belts and teach them like a black belt and expect it to be a good experience. So I, I think that's a good point about kind of understanding where people are in their journey. I've always felt that we probably, in the jujitsu space, we probably lose a lot of talent because... These people, they probably quit before they reach their maximum potential simply because they had a very negative early experience. And that's really a sad thing for any physical activity, right? To have a, to and, quit because your coach didn't recognize where you were at and what you needed. And a huge part of that, and again, this may even sound, again, counterintuitive, is giving people an out. And what I mean by that is going back to this idea of experimentation. People say they want to get fit, so they want to go into the gym and start lifting weights. Maybe cycling is your thing. Maybe a triathlon, maybe CrossFit, maybe swimming. 
right? So if I get an athlete who comes in who says, I want to be this thing, like people have to understand when it comes to contact and combat sports, it's not for everybody. Yeah. Like it just isn't. So I will tell a kid like, listen, come out, give it a try. You say you want to, but recognize that like, this isn't for anybody. This is not for everybody. So it's okay if it's not for you. Art may be for you. Basketball may be for you. Who knows? But you won't know until you try it. But I'm not going to think any less of you if this isn't what you want. And when I give kids that opportunity, or not just kids, but athletes, that opportunity for failure without feeling like a failure, most likely what you see happen is them succeed because now they've got faith that that person there is looking out for their best interests. Right. That makes a ton of sense. So I have a question for you on this journey to mastery. Let's say, you know, you, you coach someone up, they get to that point now where they are much more experienced and maybe they decide they do want to make a go at it. They do want to go and compete at the highest levels. How does the mindset training switch at that point? Because something I've noticed is the people who are early on, the people who are hobbyists, they have one series of mindset problems, mostly stemming down to their own confidence and their, their own feeling of whether they belong here. But the elite athletes, they also have a ton of, of mindset issues, but normally their mindset issues are a completely different bag of problems. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I would love to unpack how you coach someone like that, right? When you're, when you're talking to someone who's running up for a national championship or a world championship, I mean, what kind of concerns might they have that a, a regular athlete wouldn't have that you need to coach for? One of the biggest things I've seen with high-performing athletes is the history of the ego boost. And what I mean by that is they've been high performers most of their life in sports, always winning trophies, always being put on a pedestal. So now they're competing against others who have been in that same realm, and they're not prepared for ego death. Yeah. So what I will do is put them into situations in all different arenas, all different type of things that may not even relate to sport to cause that ego death so that we can go through that now so that when you are in the moment, that thing does not crush you, that you have been through that before and you've come out on the other side already. Yeah. Because to me, that's the biggest thing with a high performer is how do I handle loss? Because I haven't had it majority of my life. Majority of my life, I've won everything and have been the champion. And now all of a sudden, the guy across from me has just as many trophies as I do. Yeah. Right. And if, if you're a weekend warrior who's trying to make that leap there, you have to explain to them, just like I would with some of my high school athletes, what that experience is. If you want to go play Division One football, recognize you don't get to pick your classes. That's surrounding your football schedule for practices. You're going to have three to four meetings a day. You're going to have two practices a day. Your parties on the weekends when all your friends are going out and having the college experience, you don't get that because you're going to be on a plane with a tutor while you get ready to go prepare for a football game in the middle of nowhere and then turn around and come back on a red eye, right? Like just giving people a glimpse of the world that they think they want a a part of can be a game changer. Some people will say, I don't want that. And some people will say, bring it on. Let's do this. And those who are in the middle, you just keep working to see where they land. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't quite understand. I mean, I I don't want to downplay the local scene, but when you're kind of competing at a a small local level, maybe like a school level, for example, I mean, you can kind of brute force it, right? If you train hard enough, as long as you're training harder than the other people, there's a good chance that you're going to wind up 
at or near the top. But as soon as you broaden your scope and you start looking to, you know, statewide, provincial wide, national world championships, like you said, you're dealing with other people who are putting in the work too. And these are other people who might have the same natural gifts and athleticism that you do. You can't just rely on those anymore. And for a lot of people, I know it's a big system shock when they jump from the local scene up to the national or the elite scene, because now all of a sudden they're dealing with other people just like them. And if you're unlucky, you may have never dealt with that before in your life. So I know it is very much a shock. You'll have a lot of people who are, they're really, really big on the local scene, but they can't crack that ceiling and get up to the next level because they're dealing with other people who are equally experienced. Yeah. And with that, with the ego death, I'll tell you, uh, well, it's interesting to me, but so, you know, uh, being an athlete all my life, I mean, I remember my senior year of high school, I was the high school athlete of the year at my football banquet. I took like six out of the eight awards offered and all league, all city, all this, all that. And my very first game in college football, the first person I had to tackle, mind you, I I was at that time, 5'10", 185 pounds, was a 5'3", 235 pound running back. Here comes this bowling ball that like, (laughs) I've been, you know, just cleaning shop all of my, my history and playing football. And like, all of a sudden I am face to face this mass of a human being that I'm supposed to bring to the ground. And it's like, oh, if I want to be what I thought I was, I've got to take it to another level. And I had to reel my ego back in a little bit and go, I have to put in that work to be where I want to be because I'm going to face people like this. And including that, I got to face myself. Like I had to take a look in the mirror and go, I'm not ready yet. I got to do something better or harder or work better or more efficiently. Right, right. And I I think that for a lot of people, I mean, ego death is such a great term. We've talked about stuff like beginner's mind on the podcast before many, many times and the importance of trying to shelf the ego. I feel like with elite athletes, there are a lot more highs and lows. At least it kind of seems that way externally. With hobbyists, maybe not so much, but with people at the top level where wins and losses carry so much meaning to them and they're so publicly visible, it feels like they're always just on top of the world or they're in the dumps. And it's like a constant up, down, up, down, up, down. How do you help these people maybe flatten that and balance that a little bit more so that they don't have to ride that emotional roller coaster. I mean, I guess the answer is ego death, but how do you encourage someone like that who has been a competent elite athlete, perhaps their entire life? How do you institute that idea to them of reigning in the ego, which might be hard for them because the ego might've been something that they were relying on to get to the point that they're at now. How do you begin that process of unchaining someone from their own ego? Well, and I like that you asked that. I think it's a great question because first, let me clarify when I say ego death. For high-performing athletes, most of the time, the reason they're high-performing is because of that ego. It is not Ego is not a bad thing when it's used in the appropriate manner, right? When you can walk in with genuine confidence about what you can do and your abilities, that will propel you to heights unknown. So um, it's, it's not just about that, but like you said, someone who rides the highest of highs and lowest of lows, when that person, no matter whether they've won the championship or just lost it, when they go home, they're, they're by themselves. There's no more fans. There's no cheering. They're in a room by themselves, you know, maybe with family or if not by themselves, just like every other human being. So when it comes to curtailing that ego and kind of flattening that out, or not even necessarily flattening it out, but understanding what it is appropriately used for, it goes away from sport. Now we're talking about you as an individual human being, person, spirit, 
however you want to look at it. Are you comfortable being alone? One of my favorite sayings is, if you're going to be alone, you better be in good company. <laughs> can you be alone and be all right with yourself, right? Can you, can you win the championship and also, or lose the championship and go back and look in the mirror and still be okay with you? Or is your entire identity wrapped in that trophy? I remember Magic Johnson from the Lakers, one of my favorite basketball player of all time. He was dragged through the mud in the newspapers because after losing an NBA finals, they, he was out in the club partying, drinking, having a good time. And people were like, how are you not devastated? And he said, look, I went out on the court and I gave every ounce of what I had and left it all right there. Why should I be upset about that? I did everything I could do and it just didn't work out in my way, in my favor. That to me is someone who has a real grasp on the idea or the notion that that was a game. This is him as a human being in his life, right? So you have to, when it comes to that ego, it's not about the sport. It's about when you're alone. If you're alone, you better be in good company. That's a really a brilliant insight. I love that quote there from Johnson. That's just something that really, I think, resonates. And we've, you know, this is something that I struggle with as well. I think most people probably do this, this fear of losing and, and getting that intertwined with your ego and defining you is such a morale killer, such a mindset killer. If you think that your losses define you or they're a part of you in some way, then yeah, you're going to carry them with you everywhere you go. But like you said, if you gave it everything you had and you left it out on the field and there was nothing better that you could have done and it just wasn't your day and you can take those lessons and go and learn more and try differently next time. I mean, if you gave it 100%, is there really anything else to feel guilty about? Is there anything to feel no. bad about? I mean, no, the smart thing to do is to compartmentalize and move on with your life. Well, see, and, and I learned that lesson the hard way because my entire identity, was I an intelligent child and teenager and young man? Yes, I did really well in school, but my entire identity was, and I had different interests, but my whole identity was wrapped up in athletics. So yeah. now I'm a freshman, 17 years old in college, and I'm a starter on an NCAA football team. I'm starting all four years. And the moment my senior year, the inside of my ankle touched my groin, everyone asked me, did it physically hurt? And I said, I didn't feel it at all. Emotionally, I was crushed because I knew football was over. And the fundamental philosophical question entered my head immediately. Who am I? I don't have this thing anymore. Who the hell am I? So I spent years diving through meditation and books and Trying to, and just to try to answer that question about myself because I didn't have anything about me outside of athlete. That's what I was. That's what everything was wrapped up into. And it wasn't until I went on the journey of who am I that I started to become comfortable with, you know, bringing that ego down. And that's what I, I've got three boys. I tell them all the time because they're, they're all into sports. I will champion you in whatever you want to do. But also make sure that you champion yourself and all the things you're interested in, because whether if it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, I don't want you to just not know what to do with the rest of your life or see no, you can't even see the next step in what you want to do because you are so lost and consumed by this one thing. Yeah, that whole thing about wrapping up your identity in your your athletic pursuits and your accomplishments is 
such a trap for athletes, especially. Yeah. I mean, during my day job, you know, when you work at a desk, if you write computer code or you're an artist, right? As long as you can still create the thing you love to create, it's hard to feel like you're being taken out of the game, right? right? I mean, yes, catastrophe could happen to me, but at the end of the day, because I work in in tech, it would be pretty hard for something to happen that would prevent me from being able to perform on the job. Whereas for an athlete, their physical abilities are so much a part of their success that intertwining of their performance and their identity is a very, very dangerous thing. And every athlete is going to have to deal with this. And I worry sometimes that we don't prepare athletes for this. There's a lot of athletes who feel like they're on top of the world when they're in their 20s, and then either they suffer a catastrophic injury, like you talked about, or in some cases, they just get older, and they realize this portion of my life is wrapping up, right? I I simply cannot do this anymore. What's left? And there's two different groups of people who play this game. Some people had their their fingers in a lot of pies, so to speak, and they're able to transition into something else. Maybe they open up their own gym, they move on to consulting. But then there's other people who just are lost when their athletic career is over. They don't know what to do next. And I feel like as a coach, a big part of what you need to do as a coach is to prepare people for not just their performance on the field, but how they will carry themselves through the rest of their life after those athletic days are over. And that that goes back and ties in full circle to what we are talking about as a coach, knowing your players. Because if my player gets hurt and he's done and it's the athletics is, is over, I also know that he loves to geek out on looking at engineering of train. And it's like, man, this thing you love to do is still here. It's still viable. And as a coach, I can tell you that and use that same motivation and inspiration I gave you to go out there and run 100 miles per hour into a brick wall, doing the same thing for this train engineering thing that you love to do. But if I don't know that, what ends up happening is similar to what happened to me. I'm a two-time all-conference college player who has you know, been a captain on this team, the moment I got hurt, I go to a surgery that lasts 12 hours long where I, I woke up and 10 hours into it and they flooded me with anesthesia, which put me into a medically induced coma for three days. I lost 45 pounds in those three days. Holy moly. While I was in the hospital that was only 30 minutes away from my college, out of the 53 player roster, out of the 12 coaches and the athletic director, one person came to see me. Jeez. One person. All the stuff that I had done for that school and one person, my defensive end, Waylon Woods, one of my teammates, love him to death. He came and saw me and all he did was sit there with me for 15 minutes and then he left. Right. But no one else did. And so I was just left to my own device to, to figure out what the hell is next, what's going on. But when I know that, hey, my guy over here loves this thing as much as he loves this, it's all right. Let's just transfer that energy and focus into this other thing. You've got options. This does not have to be your only one. And it's the biggest trap I try to avoid with my athletes as well as my own children. Yeah. Yeah. The the funny thing about athletics that I, I mean, I never was really into athletics when I was younger. I, I hated athletics, honestly. And I'm probably one of the best arguments for something like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, because if someone like me can enjoy it and be decent at it, then clearly it's got something going on because I, <laughs> I hate athletics. But it wasn't until I discovered jiu-jitsu that I, I really found something that spoke to me. And Knowing what I know now and having talked to people like yourself and and a lot of other performance coaches and high performance athletes, I wish I had actually been more engaged in athletics when I was younger because 
I didn't realize how much those skills cross over. I always assumed that athletic skills were just athletic skills and they weren't useful for anything else in life. But seeing what I see now, I'm really shocked at how much about coaching, performance mindset, resilience, all of the stuff that they teach you if you want to do athletics, even at a very basic level, it cross-pollinates to almost any other career. And it's interesting to see how many people are able to pivot out of the end of their athletic career. And it is something totally different that you would never think they'd be able to do or that would have any relation to what they did in the past, but they're able to make it work because a lot of the mindset stuff is identical regardless of your pursuit. Yes. And one of the things that, so the high school I coach at, we have a total of 395 kids, ninth through 12th grade. So about 195 to 200 boys. So we're competing against cross country water polo for football. So we may get a varsity team of 23 to 26 players. And these are kids who are the in one of the most rigorously academic institutions in the nation. These aren't the kids who are six foot five, but yet we consistently outperform everyone else. And it's because the things that we teach them are not they are specific to life, not specific to sport. Our three kind of core values that we always tell the team and we always end practice on is do the right thing, give a hundred percent and love each other. That's what we preach. We don't preach win championships. We tell them most people don't do the right thing, right? Especially when no one's watching. It's hard to give a hundred percent because most people simply don't do it, don't want to, or don't know how to. And to love each other is one of the strongest things to do because it causes you to be vulnerable. These are all things that you can transfer to any aspect or any area of life. So we're out there trying to teach life lessons, which will transfer on the football field or on the court or on the mat, wherever else. But we'll also, when the moment you leave here and you go get a job or you become married and you have a spouse or you have children or you've got friends that are in conflict, you know how to handle things because of those three core values you heard inside of a football huddle. Yeah, yeah. It's weird how much that stuff cross-pollinates. When I started training jujitsu, I thought this was just going to be an alternative to running on a treadmill, right? I thought, hey, this is going to be a cool cardio exercise I can do and maybe learn a semi-useful skill at the same time. I did not expect the almost immediate difference it would have on my mindset, Mm -hmm. not because I became a UFC champion overnight or anything. I mean, I'm far from a great competitor or a great fighter by any means, but because just by comparison, if I can survive and and even thrive in a situation where giant dudes are trying to sit on me and choke me unconscious and I can survive through that and keep my composure, I can definitely survive whatever crap's going to get thrown at me during the office workday, right? I mean, because if you know after work, you're going to go and some dude is going to try to choke you out with your own pajamas, there's really not much that can happen during the day that's going to be higher stakes than that in the grand scheme of things. So it gives you that kind of that confidence boost as well, which I think is so important. And well, I was going to piggyback off that and saying in conjunction with the confidence boost, it provides humility. I'm I don't know if you guys do this at your gym, but we used to have a practice or a drill called weather the storm where you would, whatever your most uncomfortable position was, you start in that position. So I don't like anybody on my back. And I remember that specific day, Herb Dean, the UFC referee had come to our gym because he was good friends with the community, the community coach who would work at this community center with us. And 
I had to have Herb Dean, who's like, I don't know, six foot four, <laughs> six foot five, 250 pounds on my back oh, and boy. put me in a rear naked choke and like begin to, and it was just kind of like, as much as I was dominating in that class, that at least I thought so within seconds, I'm tapping and just being like, bring it down a level, right? Like just humble yourself a little bit and understand that there's more for you to learn and that there's always someone out there who's a little bigger, badder, and, and you've got some, some things to work on. So. But it also gave me the confidence to go, I can weather that storm. If I can take that from him, I can take that from a lot of people. I, I don't think people understand how much of a legitimate badass Herb Dean is because oh, most he's, people- Oh, he's real. Yeah, most people have only seen this guy in the context of being the third man in the octagon, yes. right? But this dude is a legitimate beast. Yeah, <laughs> you, you you don't want to mess with Herb Dean. No, you do not. Yeah, but yeah, I, I love what you're saying here about that. That's actually a really great drill, and it never occurred to me to do that, where you just ask people, what is your worst position? Okay, we're doing that all day. I mean, we do stuff like Shark Tank and positional sparring, and we, we try to target. But I love that idea of trying to target your worst case scenario, your living nightmare, and just training it until you get comfortable with it and developing the confidence out of that. Well, and it was my, uh, I go to see uh, another pro or former pro MMA fighter, Savant Young at Fight Academy. I go and work with him and then my Tai Chi teacher, who's been all over the world with all kinds of martial arts forms. It dawned on me the day I found him and I asked him to teach me as his personal student. And he said, well, why do you come here? And my answer to him was so that I could die every day. And what I realized, what I was trying to say and what I, I felt I said in an eloquent manner was every single time I walk in there, no matter how confident I feel, no matter how much I think I'm a badass, there's always something for me to learn and always a moment where I have to take a step back and go, whoa, this person is, is on me and like, I'm not expecting it. I'm not ready for it. And now I have to adjust and that I can transfer to anything in my life. Yeah. Yeah, man. Something that I would, I'd love to explore here while we're, we're talking about this, this concept of kind of going into your zone of discomfort mm -hmm. as a, as a coach. I mean, you provided a really awesome example of how to do that. I mean, I love that drill, but is there anything else that you do as a coach to try to steer people gently into those uncharted waters, into the things that they fear? How do you go about doing that as a coach without ultimately rattling the, the saber so much that your student gives up, right? Because it's a fine balance. You need to be constantly pushing them just a little bit outside the comfort zone. If you do it too much, then you might break them. So I, I guess the question is, how do you do that? Is there a strategy for just making sure that you're always challenging people just enough? Any questions or triggers that a coach could use to, to help help guide their students' path to growth? One of the things I do that's one of the best moments in athletics as a coach I've ever had, which is I give them an opportunity to trust me and to trust themselves. And what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. The first year I went over to a new school to coach, everyone had known who I was and was really good friends with the other coaches. And uh, but, you know, the, the athletes, I was brand new to them and I'm teaching them something new that they're not comfortable with. And I remember we went and played in our league championship game against our rival and had this kid named Jack Wilson. And Jack Wilson got beat, beat for a touchdown. And immediately he dropped his head and I pulled him to the side because he was expecting me to yank him out of the game, put another kid in. And it was like I pulled him to the side and said, I believe in you and I trust your abilities. I need you to trust them as well. I'm not taking you out of the game. 
what ends up happening is Jack Wilson not only ends up scoring a touchdown on offense, but getting the game-winning interception. And after the game, coming over just saying, thank you for trusting me, coach. That took that kid's confidence, not only on the field, but outside of that in the classroom, in his social life, to the next level. Because he was put in a situation he was uncomfortable with where he expected someone to just yank him out or leave him out to dry. And instead, someone gave instilled more confidence and trust and said, I believe in you, now go do it and believe in yourself, and gave him the opportunity to see that come to fruition, right? Now, does it always work out like that? Of course not. But had he even got scored on three more times, but every time I'm just correcting and helping and moving him here and making sure that he's, he's getting the coaching he needs to be better, you better believe that's going to transfer when he shows up to practice the next day. Coach, coach believes in me. Coach thinks I can do this. Why don't I let me step up? So I, I give them an opportunity to trust me, but to trust themselves as well. And that could be in the moment. It can also be in another category of uh, another athlete I had who was kind of seen as the quote unquote boys boy. He, he wasn't too great with academics. He was kind of a class clown. No one ever took him serious. And after his junior year, I pulled him to the side and said, I'm going to need you to be one of the leaders on my defense. I have a place for you, and it's going to be a critical place in our defense, and it's going to require you to step up to help lead these younger guys and to be one of the men on this team that is going to take us to the new heights. And in front of, and during our banquet, in front of his dad, he mentioned, Dad, I don't mean any harm by this, but this is the, second, the closest thing outside of you that I've ever had to a father because he actually saw something in me that no one else did. Right. Like take the time to recognize that everyone else needs to be lifted up in that same way and give them the chance to fail or succeed. And regardless of what the outcome is, be there for them when that happens. That's a really powerful story. And I think part of the reason it's so powerful is because people in their head, they maybe have a narration internally about what should happen when they succeed and what should happen when they fail. And I think most people assume that if they're not able to achieve the goal that they want, that they're going to be punished for it. So when you fail in that manner, and instead of your coach punishing you, the coach comes back to you with love instead of punishment. That's such a subversion of expectations. I can understand why that would be the kind of thing that would stick with you forever. Well, and think about it this way too, Steve. Like if I always tell people who who have really poor negative self-talk, I ask them, okay, you're saying all this stuff about yourself. I go, imagine a nine-year-old or or seven-year-old kid who's saying this stuff about themselves and they're telling you, this is how I feel about myself. What would you say to that seven-year-old kid? And inevitably, 100% of people would tell them, I would tell them they were awesome. They were great. Don't ever think like that. And I go, now imagine that little little kid is you. What would you say to yourself as that seven-year-old kid? Yeah. You would say the same type of stuff. So why would you say that to yourself at 22, at 37? Yeah. Right. Like just because you've you've got a couple of decades, that makes it okay for you to just completely, you know, destroy yourself internally. Like, you know, you wouldn't say that to a little kid or to a best friend who's struggling through something. So why do you turn around and do that to yourself? It makes zero sense. Yeah, it's it's one of those funny things how we're always so much harder on ourselves than we yep. are on other people. It's yep. just a I think part of the human condition and learning to love yourself is is such a key part of 
really being just healthier overall throughout your life. Something I, I want to explore with you on this topic, I mean, I think something that we've illustrated is the importance of having a really good coach. But the reality is a lot of people simply don't have a good coach. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just due to the circumstances of where they grew up or where they went to school, they may never be exposed to that life-changing coach that other people are getting exposed to. And if you're that person, I mean, if you're a, a student, an athlete, if you're someone who doesn't have that strong coach role model relationship with anyone – how do you suggest people like that who aren't blessed with the luck of the draw to get to have that person in their life? How do they go about finding that person? Is there anything they can do to identify who that person could be to reach out? I mean, I'm just wondering what that process of discovery looks like. Uh, to me, it again goes back to experimentation. If I use the example of when I wanted to learn and start to study Tai Chi, I went to every Tai Chi school that I could possibly think of in the area. I, I searched on Google 25 mile radius to 50 mile radius of my home. And I would go for the free class, the paid class, all these different things. And where you least expect it is when that person shows up. I remember going to about 10 to 15 different places and being like, this isn't it. It just doesn't feel right. And then I went to the local YMCA and I walk into this room with mirrors. And as I walk in, I'm what? 30, at that time, I think I was 33 years old. And everybody in this room is 65 plus. I'm talking about they're setting their walkers to the side. They've got canes. <laughs> People are, you know, can barely move around. And I'm like, oh, this isn't the place for me. And then in walks AG, my teacher. And he had this palpable, tangible energy and presence the moment he entered the room. And right then and there, I knew this is my guy. This is my guy. But it took me six months to find that guy. Yeah. Right. I didn't just give up. It was something I wanted to do and I was going to find the right person. Now, if you're a kid, that's different. Part of that falls on your parents to make sure you're in the right environment and helping you find that. But as an adult, just because this is the famous gym or this is maybe the cheapest gym, right? You gotta, you have to move around and find what's going to work best for you and take that chance to go, all right, I'm going to drive 10 extra miles. I'm going to pay 10 extra bucks a month. And you say, well, how do I find that 10 extra bucks a month? I bet you can put down two, uh, you know, alleviate two Starbucks coffees and that'll take care of that 10 bucks a month. Like make it a priority instead of make an excuse, right? Like go out there and search for the thing you desire. It will show up. It just may not come in the timetable that you think it should. Yeah, I think a common mistake and one that I know I've made is to give up at the first result. The way that I got into jujitsu was I, I Googled Vancouver Brazilian jujitsu and I went to the first result <laughs> and yep. I just thought, well, if they're, if they're the first hit, then they must be the best. And I didn't bother trying out any other gym. I just assumed, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And it wasn't until I'd say two years later into my journey that I, I started understanding exactly that there's a, there's a lot of gyms out there that across the board are really better than this one. And I shouldn't have stopped at the first try. I should have kept the iron hot. I should always be looking for new people I can add to my life who can bring things in, people that I yeah. can help as well, because eventually you're going to find that better coach. And you'll never find that if you stop at the first result. And it's a good experience, especially if, if folks who are listening have kids. Two things. One is like my kids are fortunate enough that their middle school athletics program actually goes out and plays other middle schools and they have every sport that the high school has. 
and but they don't overlap in season. So you can legitimately play every sport. And I told my kids, because they're into sports, if they weren't into sports, well, then they're not into it. But because they're into sports, I said, this is the only time in your life that if you're going to play sports, you're going to play every single one because I want you to experience them all because we don't watch baseball here in the house, but you may love baseball, but because you're not exposed to it, you have no idea and you think something that it's not, right? So I always have them do that with respect to that middle school aspect of it. Well, and the other thing that I would say with respect to the kids is also too, my kids do play all these different sports and they get to experience not every coach is the same. Not every teammate's the same. Not everybody's worth their weight in gold. So, hey, you may be on a team with this awesome coach. You guys win the Super Bowl. You love your coach. Every time you see him, you give him a big old hug. And then you turn around next year and you see the difference. So now you start to recognize just for yourself what a good coach is for you. So as you get older, you can see that before it's too late. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I don't I, I don't pull them out of the sport when they have a shitty coach. No, we're, we're going to get through this. You got you're lucky you have dad here to kind of help guide <laughs> you with this. But you're going to go through this because you're a part of this team. Just know that this coach is not this other coach. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, too, because it, it's hard to really say universally whether someone is a good or a bad coach, because right. just because someone is a great coach for other people doesn't mean they'll be a great coach for you. And I've seen that mistake made where people will seek out, you know, so-called celebrity coaches. They'll, they'll go and train with someone specifically because that person has a reputation for training great people. And it just doesn't work out for them. They just don't jive with that coach in that manner, right? Just because someone is good as a coach for a different person doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the right coach for you because every relationship dynamic is different. Well, and that's what I tell anybody who ever comes and trains with me, especially adults. When you come to train with me, I always will go through the first week or two or sessions with you. And it's a trial basis because I may not be a good fit for you. And quite frankly, you may not be a good fit for me. <laughs> right. And I need to be able to, to say, I'm sorry, I can't coach you. I don't want yeah. to coach you. And I, I'm comfortable with that. A lot of people are like, oh, as a good coach, you should be able to coach anybody. False. Um, as a good coach, I should know that I can get the most out of this person, this other person. They got some other things they need to focus on before they can come and work with me. Yeah, yeah. Coaching is about maximal results. It's yes. not about collecting clientele, right? No, if you're getting someone to pay you, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a good coach. No. Awesome. Well, hey, I got a question for you, Doc. Uh, before we tie this up, any closing thoughts for people out there who are either a coach or they're looking to improve their their performance by finding a better coach? Any last nuggets of wisdom you want to drop here? One, I'll say it from both ends. One is a coach. Recognize that you are going to make mistakes. Be willing to admit those mistakes to your athletes so that they can trust you and move forward. Don't ever pretend to be perfect and don't ever pretend to be perfect or don't ever pretend to act as though you have so much wisdom and knowledge that you can't learn anything from your student or your athlete. And as the athlete, give yourself a little grace. It's okay. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to lose. You're going to win. You're going to have great days. You're going to have bad days. But at the end of the day, give yourself a little grace and know that you actually showed up, which is more than the person who did it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, hey, if people found that this message resonated with them, 
if they want to check out your work, if they want to get in touch with you, how do they go about doing that? They can check me out on any social media at one coach doc. That's O N E coach doc. They can email me at renbehavior at gmail.com, R E N behavior. And I give this out at every keynote lecture I give across the country, everywhere else, 626 316 3622. I'm an open book. If I'm going to talk about being there for people and doing things the way I do things, anybody can reach out to me. Awesome. Amazing, man. Well, thank you so much. And of course, to everyone out there, if you want to reach out to me, I, I'm presuming if you found this podcast and you're listening, you probably know how to get in touch with me. But if not, <laughs> go, to, go to the website where you found this, bjjmentalmodels.com. It's got a contact form and a full link out to everywhere that you, you need to if you want to shoot me a message. It's also got a full roster of all the episodes we've ever done, plus a database of some of the concepts that we talk about here on the show. And of course, if you want to dial it up a level, we've got our awesome premium service where we dig in much deeper. We've got a bunch of audio courses that are much more in-depth than the stuff we talk about here. You can check out premium at premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Really makes a difference if you check that out. So I do appreciate it. You can give it a shot. There's a free trial there. Again, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Doc, so glad to have you on, man. Really appreciate it. It's always cool to talk to someone when you've had, you know, you've kind of seen their coaching product and you've experienced it as a, as a customer, but then you actually reach out and they respond to you and then they come onto your podcast. So really jazzed about this conversation. I thought it was a fantastic one. Thank you again for coming by and spending the time with us. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. I greatly appreciate you and uh, love what you're doing. So keep it up, man. Much love always. Thanks. And of course, to everyone out there listening, much love to you as well. Talk to you next week. 